Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCourse subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hey there, listener. This is Dr. Dakota Sharp, audiologist, clinical assistant professor, and lifelong learner, inviting you to join me on an exciting new podcasting journey known as On the Ear. As you know, audiology is ever-evolving, so it's critical as professionals that we learn and grow as well. Every other Thursday, On the Ear will be interviewing a variety of clinicians and researchers spanning a wide range of hearing and communication topics. From pediatrics to geriatrics, cochlear implants to vestibular, speech to hearing, and everything in between, this podcast will provide exciting insights that you can use in your clinical practice. Each episode of On the Ear is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs when you complete the accompanying pod course through speechtherapypd.com. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Culvertown, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. 
Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts. To break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. back at it. Haha, <laughs> again. And y'all, I don't know about you, but honestly, it's been an intense couple of weeks. Pack Dawson went from a wide open schedule to balancing the start of term, the back to school new schedule, the boys' OT and speech therapy sessions, mommy's patients' appointments balanced around their respective school schedules, and a fabulous bug that has managed to work its way through our family, which we really hope is not the zombie plague, if you ask the tiny humans. You're happening on her end. Um, and, oh, I didn't forget to mention, we went out all, Erin, I went all out this weekend and um, battled the vacuum cleaner. Um, I don't know who won me or it or um, Christian because he's the one who ended up having to take the, um, <laughs> the busted pieces off to the trash. But, you know, we did that and decorated for fall. So we do have a little bit to celebrate. All right. I went through and shared the craziness of the past week. Honestly, that all happened in a week um, because, well, I need to stress that in therapy, just like in life, less is more. And that's kind of the theme of today, how to do more with less, especially when it comes to a feeding therapy session. So that's your theme. Um, Miss Erin, how's it going for you, lady? Did you get all falled up this weekend? Um, it is great. I'm not falled up. I went house hunting with my friend and that was stressful enough for me. So yeah. Didn't you tell me you found one that you thought was haunted? Yes, I had a bullet hole in the garage door window, I think. It just felt like it's seen some things. <laughs> so she's so she's not planning on purchasing the house with me. No, I told her I had bad vibes, and she thought it was nuts, but logistically it didn't work, so I was happy because I didn't want to sleep there. <laughs> I love that. Oh, my God. Well, I'm, I'm glad that um, sweet friend did not um, put a bid on that house. Congratulations. No, she put a bid on a new house, so that is likely not haunted. Yes, no. Um, although I got to tell you, new construction, man, you got to watch out for it. Anybody out there that has new construction is like, yes, 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 yes. Why? Cheap drywall, nail heads popping out. You got to plaster them little suckers and then they pop out through the plaster because I, they're, I don't know, making bad choices. Not that that's happened and I've had to replaster several nail heads over the last few years. We're fine. <laughs> okay. All right. So we have we have a lot to cover today because there's, there's a lot of different changes that we can do to our feeding sessions, and they're not historically housed in the SLP world, right? So what I've learned over the years is that collaboration and interprofessional practice with our occupational therapy friends, our physical therapy friends, our um, teachers of the deaf and blind, and um, real vision therapists, because I use that term very carefully there, they are the keepers of phenomenal knowledge that unless we seek out their advice and wisdom, our sessions will go on as status quo. But when we take a minute to reach out to them, we have so much to learn to make our sessions better. So let me, let me start with the suggestions that we've picked up with over the years, they're not typically found in our world, but in our colleagues. 
So that's, I, I feel really, really strongly that if you're working in early intervention, y'all pick up the friend, pick up the phone and ask a friend to observe their sessions and then ask why afterwards. So huge soapbox, dun, 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 to quote Sir Theodore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So um, Erin has created a beautiful spreadsheet of ideas here. So she gets um, total credit for um, being the organized one of the two of us. Which I'm not usually. I, I don't know. You normally hold me accountable. So I'm, you're like, you and Annalise are my accountability partners. Uh, okay. So let's tackle um, optimal positioning for PO intake first. So what are some considerations um, that we need to look at when we start with optimal positioning? I mean, as we all know, or as we've talked about just first, and what I like to do and what I like to make sure I do, it's different when you're in home health because you can see where they're actually sitting. So from like your standpoint, you're going in and you're seeing the seat that they're actually eating in. And when I'm in the clinic, I, we have um, like a Riften, we have an activity chair, we have high chairs that we can adjust and position them properly. But I like to ask families what position their child is usually sitting in because they're not in a good position, then you're just, like you say, you're building your house on sand. And we always talk about like 90, 90, 90. Wait, tell me where the 90, 90, 90 is for those that haven't heard that phrase. You want your hips at a 90 degree angle. You want your knees at a 90 degree angle and you want your feet flat, which is very important. And we don't think about a lot because if our kids are weighing their feet on the ground, A, they're going to get more distracted. That's more sensory. They want, you want their feet to be grounded for that core support. And from just a regulation standpoint, I think. And so that's, I mean, that's number one is to make sure they're in good position. That's not always, you're not always going to have the perfect chair for a child, you know, whether it's they need more head support or they need more support in their core, we've used like uh, pool noodles sometimes um, to put on their side. Or you have to think too when a kitchen towel. Yeah, that's what we'd use in the hospital a lot. But you think in a high chair too, they have that little piece that goes in between their legs so that that prevents them from sliding forward. A lot of times like you'll put the kid in the chair and then you'll put the top of the high chair on. Make sure to look there too, because if they're sliding, they're just gonna keep sliding and that reduces their core support. Crystal, our OT friend taught me that. So like you can put a little cut up pool noodle there so that their push, their back is straight, more straight as opposed to slouching. So I was gonna say um, a couple of thoughts. When you're in the high chair, if okay, if you if you don't have your own tiny humans and you're going to put the said tiny human in the high chair, watch as my grandma would say, their sweet meat, their thighs, the inside of their arms. If they um, have their arms down and you put the high chair on top, it might click and lock their um, skin in place. And I've done that to Goose, poor kid. He's the guinea pig, right? First child. Also, if you see them sliding out, and this is this is one thing that I have found more common in the rural communities that I go to. When you have a high chair, you might not have been the first person to have that high chair. So you know, when you get the high chairs and they're brand new, they come with like the fluffy seat cushion on it. Well, as time goes on and it goes through a couple of kids, those fluffy seat cushions, like the, they crack. And so parents will, will chuck those, right? So you're just sitting them in the hard plastic, which means that they're more likely to slide. So taking the, oh, what did Crystal say? Like a tape, there's like a certain tape you can use to like, you can use, um, uh, oh my gosh, kinesio tape or a cabinet liner. You know the square checkered cabinet liner? You can find it at like the dollar store. I've got, I have gray ones lining my cabinets, but they're not that expensive. So that way when they get dirty, you can, you can toss them, right? But that, if you put that across the back or on the bottom, that will help hold them. Also, a pot holder that has the Teflon lining, the Teflon lines down both sides, or a pot holder, what else is it called? An oven mitt. Semantic paraphasia. Come on, Michelle. But that would that would help uh, help give them that better positioning. Okay, continue. Sorry. I'm trying to think where I was headed next, but whether they're 
breastfeeding, bottle feeding, eating purees, eating table food, positioning is so important. I think about um, some of my older kids who have like autism or ADHD. We have a, we have a Kikuru chair where you can um, adjust where the foot rest is. So it's at the proper position to get their feet flat. But what I'll do for some of them from just a cueing standpoint is if they're old, if they can read, I'll write like, I'll ask them first, I'll say, what does good feeding or good listening carries over to position look like? And so I write down what we talk about, like facing forward, feet on the ground, sit up straight. And when we're moving around or putting our feet on the wall or just getting distracted, they can always redirect to whether it's pictures or words, something visual to help them with their positioning, because that's also very important, even with our older kids for them to have optimal, have an optimal feeding session. What you, you, when you said 90, 90, 90, and the pressure through the feet, we take for granted that we're adults, right? That we're tall and that, well, I mean, you have fabulous legs. I, on the other hand, for those of us that fall within the more petite category, if you've ever gone to a tall bar stool table and I sat at one over the weekend that I couldn't even touch my feet. And I was like, I don't like this. No, because you're floating in space. Okay. Well, as, I mean, maybe as an adult, you had one, maybe. I wasn't at a bar. I was sitting outside, but it was a bar stool. I just want to clarify that for everyone. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I know you, you are there probably at the bar stool. Okay. I'm going to behave. I love you. Okay. But when you go to the tall bar stool table or the tall bar and you have an adult beverage and maybe you have two and all of a sudden you're slightly discombobulated and you go to make your exit from said bar stool bar table for those of us on the petite end, y'all, that's a challenge. That's a challenge on a good day, much less on a day that you enjoyed company with other nerdy SLPs, right? That's what it's like for our tiny humans without that proprioceptive where my body is in space feedback. So when we're giving these tips, it's all centered around um, proprioception, where their body is in space. Now, um, you are like so close to having your CLC and I'm so proud of you. But one of the things that they say in it is tummy to mummy and nose to nips, right? So I always told my tiny human mommies also don't forget hips and lips because your hips have to be aligned with your lips. If your hips dip, then you're throwing off where the body, the proper alignment for PO intake is when you're doing a breastfeeding or a bottle feeding session. And I do encourage using the crook of your elbow or say you're doing like a football hold with the tiny baby, then a football hold, it's exactly like what it sounds like. You're holding the baby like they're a football, right? Then I would encourage having their feet pushed into either, um, the couch cushion or um, a soft blanket, that way the infant is getting the feedback through there. But that's, that even for our newborns, having that feedback through our feet is, yes, 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 yes. Well, and I mean, we talk a lot about how with like babies, you want to change the nipple before you change the flow rate because, or you want to change the flow rate before you, you thicken. Um, because that's, that's optimal to having to add anything to their formula or breast milk, but positioning is first. So when it comes, you know, when, when you feed a baby in the NICU, most of the time you're in, in sideline because you want to help them have more control over the bolus. Oh, what is it? 80% of like breastfeeding difficulties can be changed, can be fixed with positioning. I then might have that percentage wrong, but I think that's, it's, it's very high. Um, I'll double check on that, but from newborn up until older children and with our kiddos, especially like you and I see a lot of very medically complex kiddos that have difficulty with their core strength. Yes. We talk about with a typically developing kiddo, you want them to be able to be sitting up before you offer periods. You want them to have that core strength for some of our kids that that might never happen. You have to compensate and you compensate by giving them good positioning because instead of them working on 
figuring out their body in space and leaning to the side and trying to hold their head up. If you position everything so tight, then those fine motors or fine motor oral motor skills and their swallowing can they can compensate for that because they have all this support. So every kid is so different as to why positioning is so important, but it is so important. And if you don't work on that first, and I mean, it, the rest of what you do doesn't, I mean, it matters, but you're going to be, but it'll be working impeded. against something. Yeah. It'll be. Impeded. Yeah. Hmm. That was a lot. We just like, <laughs> I love how we're like, we have so well, so I mean, even I, I just, there were times when I have seen like, and this was in an acute care setting, but when I have seen speech therapists go in to evaluate a kid that comes in for failure to thrive and they're evaluating, they just want an overall evaluation of their feeding skills. So the team can get a better idea of where we're going with this child. And you just sit them up in bed and hold them. What, and I remember there was a time where like I observed someone kind of, they were just giving them support on their back, trying to feed them. I think it was still a bottle. This kid was very complex, but I was like, let's, that's not an accurate representation at all. This child is like leaning to the side. You barely have any support. It's like, let's just get him a high chair. It's something to help support them because this, I don't know what you're observing, right? Or what you're evaluating right now, because this is not appropriate to just sit them up in bed like they're an adult that you can just like elevate the the head of bed. It just isn't, there are a lot of times when I've seen like, it just does, it's also not fair to the child because that's not an accurate representation of their skills or their abilities. And we just need to think about that. Because they don't have the support. Okay, so there's there's one little lady that you and I have shared over the years. Um, and because of her condition, she cannot independently hold her head up. Right. So one of the strategies, I mean, I did as best I could, right. With towel rolls laterally and, you know, changing chair recommendations with the OT, but the PT came in and I don't know what the device is called. It looks like the airplane head holder pillow but it's better. It's thick. It's foam. Somebody somewhere is like, I know what that is, but it, it straps on. It has a protective um, soft fabric that's machine washable on the outside. And, and it was custom like cut to fit around her little head. And it has made all of the difference in the world for her quality of life, pleasure feeding. And that makes my heart so happy. So, I mean, I, I, I phrase this with caution. I mean, not all children would benefit from like the neck pillow, right? But do no harm. And if OTPT is supportive of this assistive tool, that might be great. Also, you mentioned one thing, the little divider between the um, children's thighs when they sit in the, um, the high chair, that divider is great especially for little ones that have CP, like spastic CP. And, and the footrest on some of those chairs have Velcro straps to help hold their, sh their feet in place, especially if they're prone to contracting or if they go floppy and their feet fall out. So just as an, another thought, now you don't want to constrain a child. So we're not you know, giving recommendation from that perspective, but from a, from a support perspective, that would be the, the, the recommendation there. But yeah, I think, I think we kind of covered optimal positioning across. Wait, I had one last thought. One of the chairs, the special tomato chair does have head support in the event that the child that you're working with has, um, infantile spasms and like drop seizures, uh, that, that head support uh, that's amazing. You might want to look at some of the adaptive equipment and devices. And if your child that you're working with does not have these devices available, did you know that you as the SLP can work with the team to bring in adaptive seating equipment? That is not only the purview of OT and PT, we can help facilitate that as well. So if your kid needs some equipment, be the source of change and advocate. So, 
the adaptive equipment folks. Why can I not think of their name? Durable medical equipment. There it is. Durable medical equipment. Oh, yeah, I didn't know if you, what you were looking for. Yeah, there. it's okay. I knew I would go there. See, that little bug has fried mommy's brains. Oh, my goodness. The next topic I'm actually really excited about. So we are going to cover some considerations for environmental changes to address sensory and vision needs. But y'all, did you know that it is Cortical Vision Impairment Awareness Month? Oh, it's a lot of awareness months. <laughs> I I know. What, wait, what other month is There's it? There's so many. All important. It's NICU Awareness Month, too. <laughs> that, that's where both of our brains go. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, all, all important and valid and should be yes, acknowledged. Yes. So, well, especially when you think about it, one directly leads to another. A lot of our, C, our babies with CVIs aren't NICU grads. So, yeah, I remember the eye exam days. You did not feed a baby right after their eye exam. They were not happy. No, no. I mean, because you can't see it coming. And I had to watch one and I have weird, I have weird things with my eyes. I can't wear contacts. I don't like things. My eyes are very sensitive. And so I did not enjoy watching the eye exams at all. Mm -mm, no, I, I wear contacts. Oh, I told the boys that when um, Bear is convinced that I take my eyes out every single night, nobody unconvinced him of this. It's just mommy taking her contacts out. And he's like, that's so cool, mom. And I'm like, yep, but these are my magic eyes so I can still see you. <laughs> My story, I'm sticking with it. Okay. All right. So Boston Children's Hospital has a amazing website for cortical vision impairment symptoms and causes. And um, some of the leading causes of CVIs are hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, HIE, periventricular leukomalacia, PVLs, traumatic brain injury, uh, neonatal hypoglycemia, infections, epilepsy, metabolic disorders, cardiac arrest on the mom drug exposure as well. And they're, help me out here, the lights that when they're in the NICU, if they don't keep the protective eye gear on, can't that also cause vision impairments? I am not positive on that, but I would assume yes. I felt like, yes, I, I felt like there was a component to that. I read that somewhere. But like, PVL, HIE, I saw a lot of that in the NICU. Okay, so I say all this because I had supervisor tell me one time, well, I guess she wasn't really a supervisor. She was the family trainer slash early interventionist, and I was the brand fresh new to South Carolina EISLP. And she, I had never worked with a child who had a cortical vision impairment before. And she said, Michelle, it's like they're looking through a cheesecloth that shifts every day. Some days when they're feeling great, they have more visual acuity. And then other days when they have headaches or God forbid their shunt clogs or um, they're having um, an epileptic storm, for lack of a better phrase, their vision is more compromised. And that kind of threw me because I didn't think of CVI as, as being transient. And it made me reassess. And the mom that we were working with, she goes, I swear if you pull bubbles out of a bag and blow bubbles at my blind baby, I'm going to show you the door. And I was like, well, one, the only thing I have in my bag is the patient intake forms and a laptop to take notes. And two, I promise I will not blow bubbles at your baby. And like from that moment on, that lady and I became like the closest of friends. But, you know, she's not wrong. So I say all that because how would you uh, interact and engage with the world if every morning you woke up and you didn't know what your visual experience was going to be like for that day, right? That's crazy. Okay. All right. So hit me up with some ideas, lady. Well, and I also just want to say that I think, especially with our really complex kiddos, this can get overlooked from a standpoint of they have all these other things going on that they might not be as responsive, so we don't catch it right away. So I think it's something for whether we're, when we're working on like cause and effect or we're working on feeding, if you're noticing these signs of they are attracted to like reds and blacks and whites, or you notice changes in, in their vision to 
make note of that because I don't think that it's something that is on the forefront of everyone's mind. And there are some people that may say that seizures can't cause cortical vision impairment, even neurologists. So you just have to be very <laughs> pushed sometimes when you, when you notice these signs and because they deserve to see too, and they deserve to have, I just, I know it's a big soapbox, but I struggle because I feel like some of our very complex kiddos, severe and profound, do not receive all the services that they need because they're so complex and they just equate it to their disorder. Just because they have a disorder does not mean that they don't deserve the same opportunity to see and hear and have these experiences with the world. So mm -hmm. that's just my, I'm very passionate about that because I have had experiences with patients that doctors have just been like, well, it's just their genetic syndrome. I'm like, if a child with Down syndrome has enlarged adenoids, you still do surgery on them. So it's not, you don't just say they have a Down syndrome, they're low tone, they have enlarged adenoids. So sorry, rant over. Still advocate. No, that's okay. So I'm going to piggyback on the piggyback because Dr. Carol Page, who has been on numerous times before to cover assistive technology, she did an episode specifically on CVI. And I remember her saying in the episode that children with CVI can still utilize, functionally utilize eye gaze technology. I say this because I have witnessed it. I have had a child that had the rare genetic syndrome that should not, on the surface, on paper, should not have been able to functionally access an eye, a high-tech eye gaze. Like all the documentation says otherwise. But you know what? Not only did she rock it, she's rocking it in two word combos and we just had insurance pay for it. It's mind blowing. Okay. All right. So we did have to do, we had to alter the background to make it CVI friendly, which carries over to how do you address vision components for PO intake. This is an area that's very near and dear to my heart because of my special needs brother-in-law who has a CVI. Okay. So for him, it is critical. And, and for all these little ones that it's less is more and predictability. Okay. Our little ones that have CVI really, really do rely on their other senses. So muscle memory is key. There are, there are products out there that you can buy to facilitate this, but you can also make this yourself. So for uncle Matthew in particular, he has to have a white plate not the plate with the pretty patterns on it because then he can't tell if he's eating. Yeah. Yeah. Where the food is. It's a, is it a salad or is it the leaves or the Christmas tree on the fancy Christmas China? Right. Um, <laughs> although it's really funny when he does get the Christmas tree plate and he's like, I know there is green bean casserole. <laughs> like he, it, I mean, you just gotta love it. Right. So he has to have a solid color plate and Every morning, his pills are administered in the same location. So you have the plate, the fork, the spoon are in the exact same location. The glass is in the exact same location. And his thyroid pill is in a little, it's, it's, it's right adjacent to the cup. No more than three inches away. Because if it is, then you'll see his little hands, his finger taps on the um, kitchen counter to find it, right? They have CVI-friendly dishware that has rubber bottoms that is red, blue, yellow, machine washable. It's like a plastic. Uh, the cups have like a, not the cups, the plates have a, like almost a lip or a ledge on the side so that if you're scooping with a fork or a spoon, it won't fall off of the plate. So it sets the individual for autonomy and, and self-respect, honestly. So that way when they're eating, I mean, I'm self-conscious when I make a mess. You should see me trying to eat noodles. They go every which way, right? But it facilitates that. So by having the plates and the bowls brightly colored so that they can see it, but not in a pattern, just bold colors, and then predictability and placement, those are all great resources. And I like the rubber bottoms because then it sticks and it doesn't slide. I mean, especially for our little ones when they just want to be ornery and pick it and chuck it. I mean... If it's rubber squished to the table, it's a little bit harder than picking it up and chucking it. <laughs> yeah. Like the easy, I like the easy peasy mats, but those are all one color. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to like distinguish the boundaries. 
which I'm sure there are ways that you could like take those maps and draw black lines or find some way to help them decipher between foods or between sections. But those, I like those because they're the flat mat and it's easy to scoop between each section. One suggestion that we've done for we did with Uncle Matthew, but you could carry over into the home, especially if you're in the home. You know, the red glittery Mylar balloons, they have glitter stickers like that, like red glitter Mylar looking stickers. And we put that over the popcorn button when he blew the popcorn. He may or may not have blown a microwave into his memories. And my father-in-law came home to find Uncle Matthew and the three dogs on the front porch. And he goes, the firemen were here. It was not a potato in the microwave. And she was like, what just happened? Um, he put the popcorn bag in on the potato button because he saw the PO, right? And which I thought was like, bless him. So those little red stickers on the target button for the microwave, it's another tool to engage autonomy in PO trials, right? Because not only do we want to set them for success at the table, but we also want to get our little ones in the kitchen and learning how to cook and feed themselves. And that's a life skill. So little, little changes like that. Oh, well, you always talk about um, the band you can put on the bottle. Oh yeah. The red coping. Yes. Mm -hmm. Just to like, when kids have that clear bottle and especially when they're working on like self-feeding with the bottle to put like a red band around it, almost like, um, not like a coffee sleeve, but you know, you have those coffee cups that have like the green, it looks like it, but just a band to give them some more cute visual cueing to be able to do that themselves. They have that band. You can buy those. Like I had one family, I, when the boys were little, um, one of the moms was trying to get me to buy three bands with their custom labels to like custom label their bottles. And I'm like, it's three pieces. Yeah. yeah three pieces of rubbery plastic for 15 bucks. Right. I was like, if I'm buying three of anything, it's a cup of coffee and that's a wiser investment. And the mom did not think that that was as funny as, <laughs> but they do sell them now at Walmart for like way cheaper. And it does. And it also gives like proprious, like it gives like tactile cues. Okay, so the reason why I like those bands on the bottles is for visual cueing, but it's because the bottles are clear. So our nipples, comparative to our breast tissue, are two completely different colors. Right. Because our nipples are literally a bullseye for newborns who can only really see black, white, and red to latch here, right? It, it tells them when you engage that with the root reflex, turn, chomp, go to town, right? But when you're bottle feeding, the bottle doesn't have that visual support. So even putting red around the rim um, or putting that right around the rim, um, I, I like to paint my fingernails bright red and then hold the bottles right um, near the top so that the children can see my bright red fingernails as well which is not a tax deduction, no matter how much I asked Mr. Schriedman, <laughs> but I tried. But even just like, aside from kids that have, like, if we're still going on, like transitioning to, for vision in a different way, if you have kids that have, get very distracted by visual um, cueing, they're overly sensitive to colors and pictures and uh, like patterns. I try and keep my room I mean, for any feeding kid, I try and keep my room very minimal. It's, I say it's for my patients. Part of it's for me. I don't like a lot of things in my, I get distracted. Um, but we want our patients when, especially when we're asking them to eat foods they're not as comfortable with, when we're challenging them in that way, we don't want them to be overstimulated because that just leads to not wonderful sessions. When they're doing other tests, maybe if it's an older kid, like I have a, a fellow clinician that I work with who her room is very, has a lot of, it's very busy, but for her patients, it works because they're working on like articulation and later language and things like that, where they need to be stimulated to work on those things. So 
from our, my standpoint, I want it to be calm. I want them to, you want to think about colors too, like very bright, aggressive colors. I, I would describe aggressive colors as like a bright yellow or like a lime green or a very harsh red. Like those aren't necessarily colors that you, you want to be surrounded by when you're consuming a meal because it's just a lot. I did paint the boys' bathrooms those colors, but just so that they would wake up and be ready to roll because it's obnoxiously yellow, but it wakes you up. But you're using, yeah, you're using colors for different, like you have different goals. You want, like my room is a light purple, which I didn't pick on my own, but I think it works very well from the standpoint of, you know, calming them down, regulating them. I think it's just important to think about things like that because we're going to ask them to do things that they're not extremely comfortable with. And so I actually been reading a lot of books about like regulation and their, your engine and kind of talking about how, especially with my older kids, like how they're feeling, because if we're going to, if you're not regulated, if you're already at a high anxiety, then ask it's, you're not really going to get much from them. And I, and I explain it to parents in the way of, like, I'll compare it to our, our children with autism who have trouble with eye contact. I ha- may buy into a different belief, but I think they can learn language without eye contact, you know, AAC looking at their device. With eye contact being a stressor, if they're in that fight or flight mode while they're trying to make eye contact with you, your body shuts down and your higher functioning levels of your brain aren't processing that information because you're, you're going into survival mode. So making sure that these kids aren't in survival mode from the start because they're not going to process or um, maintain that information. They're not in the position to learn. So I don't know how I got there from pictures, but making, trying to keep your room as minimal and make sure that they're regulated from the start, I think is really important from like a visual or sensory standpoint. I know there's certain environments where that's really hard to, you know, I, there'll be times in the clinic where it's very loud and busy and that can be distracting from an auditory standpoint, but you can only control what you can control. So. Okay. So I'm thinking of it from when you, you have your therapeutic presence, you know how to engage the therapeutic presence and sense of self because you have a psych undergrad, right? And you, I mean, and Crystal's mentored the daylights out of both of us, right? Well, and Paul. And one of the things that I have to remind families is when they are having mealtime at home, how we need to cut back on screen time in the background or screen time at general in, in mealtime. So I'm thinking of one family that I go to, you know, there's other children in the home, they're doing teleschool. So during our sessions, you know, one sister's on an iPad plugged in and another sister's on the desktop plugged in, rightfully so. They both need to be plugged in. They're both doing school. I mean, they're not goofing around, but I have to reposition where we are at the table so that the little one isn't visually distracted by it, right? And, and they have headphones on. So that's, if they're not using headphones, having headphones on in the background. And that in and of itself can be a hard sell for families, but screen time really does ramp kids up. And there's plenty of research from the American Academy of Pediatrics on that. Also, you did talk about um, the regulation books that you're reading. Um, let me pull up my Amazon list because I've got some in my, um, in my Kindle store. Yes. Let me see too. Cause I think I have some and Crystal gave them to me. I have some in my office, but I'm learning like, even from, I have a kid, for example, who he like plays with his fork, like crazy. He just twists, he spins it. He, you know, moves it around. He drops it very consistently and we talked about like a spinner because a lot of these books, and I mean, I know a lot of people work closely with OTs, have, have taken courses for those of you that haven't, like you think about, there are positive, not positive and negative, but there are, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. There's, we need, I, I tap my foot a lot or I shake my leg a lot. 
And that's, I know that's a self-regulation. It bothers some people when they're sitting on the same couch as me, but, but that's a way that I self-regulate. So for some of these children, they don't have a functional way to do that. So instead of shaking their leg, maybe they're like doing something else motor that isn't conducive to the environment that they're in. So for this child that flings his fork around and has difficulty, that's impacting a mealtime. So instead of saying, we're going to stop and try and make you just sit there completely still, that's, that may increase anxiety because he's not able to regulate. So a fidget spinner, maybe like that while we're sitting, while we're chewing, because we need to work on pacing and chewing, we, we spin because we're a little anxious because we're eating foods we don't want to eat. And then we pick up our fork and we eat. So it's helping that. Go ahead. If you have the books, I have a couple too. Okay. So I've got, I've got a few, um, movements that heal rhythmic movement training and primitive, primitive reflex integration by Dr. Harold Bloomberg, uh, raising a sensory smart child, the definitive handbook for helping your, um, your, well, I was going to say tiny human, but um, an email popped up on my cell phone. Um, the Definitive Handbook for Helping Your Child with Sensory Processing Issues by Lindsay Beal, M-A-O-T-R-L, and Nancy Pesky. I apologize. Dun, dun, dun. Routines-based early intervention supporting young children and their um, families. That's on here. And I say that because that's part of this and I'm just gonna, I'm very excited about that one. Um, the other one, I like the, um, how does your engine run? The leader's guide to the alert program for self-regulation. And it's written by two of them. They have a lot of pictures that help like samples of engines running high, you're running, you're, you're crying, you're jumping and dancing. Like not, these aren't necessarily bad or good things. They're just how they feel. You're not as regulated when you're doing things like that. Mm -hmm. Having kids write about how they feel during certain activities. I also love the whole brain child by Daniel Siegel and the out of sync child, part of the out of sync child series by Carol Stock. Kranowitz, I think is how you say her name. I've got, I've got a bunch of other ones in here, but they're not all. We can, um, we can post them. Okay. We can, we can Instagram them. I also have the minimal, minimalist bakers every day. I'm cooking for 101 entirely plant-based recipes. Um, free tip. That thing is amazing. I just really like that book. Um, just as and for those of you that don't follow us on Instagram at first bite podcast, we do post like books that we're reading mm -hmm. articles, weekly, shameless plug, but <laughs> yeah, but we share, we share the good, we share good info there. Yes. There's, yeah, yeah. There's other things that we don't, have in the yes, podcast yes. that we'll share on there. So, okay. So somehow our sensory vision needs morphed into considerations for behavioral challenges. Okay. I have to do a soapbox. It is the purview of the speech language pathologist and the occupational therapist to address and treat oropharyngeal dysphagia. It is outside of the scope of practice. Let me rephrase that the roles and responsibilities of an ABA therapist to assess and treat a child with a known oropharyngeal dysphagia. If you don't believe me, then please check out the um, roles and responsibilities under the ABA licensure, and they don't really have a license per se. Um, there's certification process. Um, they don't hold a state license like in South Carolina, commiserate with um, OT and speech. It is very much within our scope of practice to diagnose and treat. Also, to quote the amazing Dr. K. Toomey, only two to three percent of feeding disorders are truly a behavioral feeding disorder, and they typically fall under the broad category of ARFID, which an FLP cannot diagnose. That has to be diagnosed by clinical psych or psych, um, psychologist or psychiatrist, okay? So I just got to like lay that foundation for this little section. I also struggle, and I may need some of your help in this section because and it's less of like behavior issues in the session and more of the behavioral like strategies mm -hmm. because I have a couple kiddos that like in therapy, I could get them to eat a significant amount of food just from reward or they like 
back and forth a lot of the behavioral strategies that they'll use, but I don't feel that it's functional or will aid in, and every kid is different. There are some kids that they really just need to have, I mean, maybe that have reinforcement or have those, use those strategies to feel comfortable and then aid in that carryover. But I always struggle with some of these kiddos because I just, like you talked about with like the iPad. I read this article a couple months ago where they um, had children that were going to the dentist to get procedures and they had them like complete a puzzle or do something that was like higher level thinking to reduce that anxiety and it helped with them through the process of the procedure. And you think about like in a lot of our feeding sessions, kids are really anxious. If you distract them, yeah, a lot of times they'll eat more. But how functional is that? From a standpoint of I want them to be an active participant in their meals, a lot of times they'll all use like, especially with the really little kids, is like play, not just play with food, but like you incorporate play because play is how they learn language. Play is how their brain functions and learns a lot. Most of their skills as children, we talk during meal time. Like with my older kids, I make sure to have conversations because they should be experiencing that social aspect of meal time, but play with my younger kids, I feel like is something, and yeah, sometimes we'll play and we can let this animal out of the barn, like after we do some of our, like take some of our bites or whatever, but I, I so struggle with it because I know it can be successful in the moment, but I don't know how successful it can be through carryover. This is where I really feel that home-based therapy or virtual therapy that allows us into the home gives us more opportunities because the behaviors that we see are a direct result for coping mechanisms according to a sensory situation that are a direct result from um, a medical etiology, right? And so um, it's one thing leading to another thing leading to another thing. For the most part, we have to get back to what is the root medical etiology. But that can take weeks and months to find out the child has celiac disease, has eosinophilic esophagitis, that the child has all of these different factors going on, right? In the meantime, the families respond to stress differently, and they all give a child specific coping mechanisms to make the rest of the family unit successful. And there's sometimes, unfortunately, knee-jerk reactions to a heavy stress event, right? So one of the ones, um, the best way to go about it, if it's possible, I try to be there for a typical family mealtime. And let me tell you what, when you're there for a typical family mealtime, it doesn't really look typical because it might be the only time that week that they're sitting down at the dinner table because now they're incredibly conscious that you've asked to come to that right? But I I tried to build rapport and say, no, I want to know what does it look like when you have socially distanced gymnastics and swim lessons going on? And then you're also trying to squeeze in virtual Boy Scout club night, right? And then addressing behaviors there. And a lot of times that you'll find that the behaviors result from a crescendo effect, right? Um, Mom's in the kitchen and there's lots of loud noises going on. Uh, There's banging, there's whistles, there's alarms dinging, um, siblings in the other room screaming and crying because another sibling broke a Barbie. And it's all of this is an overwhelming sensory experience. And then it's sit down, get at the table. We've only got 20 minutes before we go here, here, and here, and here, and here. And now you've just put a time limit on a child that was already stressed. And then you see that, oh my gosh, there's no support for this child in how they're physically sitting. And so you have to do literally all the things we just talked about. You have to change position. You have to change the environment. You have to get the kid in the kitchen. But it really does start with you first have to teach this family how to breathe. Now, how do you facilitate those variables in an outpatient clinic? Ask somebody to set up their cell phone on record mode and just record snippets of dinnertime meal prep snippets of dinner time and that way i mean yes they're going to be self-conscious but honestly you're going to forget that the camera's on and you're just going to go back to being like real life bomb right and but taking that observation and picking it apart with 
other members on the team, an occupational therapist, maybe they have a clinical psychologist on, on the team, and then saying, all right, how, do we can, how can we actually set this kid for success? Did, I'm not sure that that helped, but figuring, doing, to quote Christian, doing the root cause analysis to figure out what's setting them for failure with behaviors. And then if it is too much screen time, well, you can't cold turkey that, but tapering it down. If um, they're upset because the food's just presented, well, then get them involved in the mealtime or start with having them serve everyone. Uh, that That's honestly, that little change right there, having the child be responsible for serving or say they're really overwhelmed by the sight of new food. So serving is too challenging. Well, then have them clean up. Have them participate in taking the dirty dishes from the kitchen table and putting them in the sink or having, I'm thinking of um, Rosie the Beagle, my in-laws, Rosie's dish cleanup first. So like she gets the scraps, which explains why she looks like a Vienna sausage on toothpicks walking. But Rosie does clean up and then it goes in the machine, right? Also, you have to watch your fingers because Rosie will get too excited and then clean your fingers too. <laughs> but those little, those little challenges yeah little our friend leslie talks about like her taco tuesday where you it doesn't have to be tacos it's not to be tuesday but something that's consistent that they can change you know with a taco you can put lettuce one day you can put oh last week we put lettuce let's put try cheese on this day they don't have to eat it they can just help make it or you can do pizza and you can put different a lot of families do you guys do pizza movie night a lot of families do pizza and uh, on Fridays or things like that, just to have some consistency for them too, because I know that, especially in our world now, that can be very difficult. I was going to say that predictability is joyful. I mean, how goose and bear, Friday night, pizza movie night, let's pull out the couch. Yes, we have a sleeper sofa and we all dogpile on the couch and watch pizza movie night, but like it's our stick and we love it. <laughs> but yes. Mm -hmm. And giving them an out, like you taught me about the all done cup. Yep. A lot of times, like when, if they know that they don't, that they have an out or that there's some, that if they, this is really, really too challenging, they can spit the food out or they can refuse. Then a lot of times I think that helps the behavior because they feel safer. And I'm a big proponent of language, like incorporating as much language around the food as you possibly can for those kids that that can do that because that allows them to express how they're feeling and why they don't like something and they understand the food a little bit more it, it for food chaining purposes if you spend so much time talking about how the food looks and feels and smells then when you introduce a new food you can spend time talking about how similar it is and how and that allows for, that's valuable. I mean, coming from a, like a regulation standpoint too, I think I struggle as, like I struggle sometimes because you always feel like you have to be doing something in regards to like the feeding. But if I have a kid that really needs to be regulated and we need to go and go on the swing for 10 minutes before we can start our session, then that's valuable time. Um, but realizing that, that that's valuable to your session. And that is still skilled because you knew that they had to do that to regulate. And you, you understood that that was, would bring value to your session. And you also do a really good job with making sure that the, um, when you're using the words, you also embed feeling words. And that's key. Like I'm stressed. <laughs> One little girl, she would sign stress and it was like, honest to God, like the best perfect stressed face. And she would do it at the same time. And she would go, I'm stressed. And I'm like, okay, let's not be stressed. Let's take it back a notch, baby. Yeah. Or even just like, a, like, I know that people worry, like if you, if, if they're going to be stressed and they're going to be anxious and they're not going to want to do it, but you can teach children that they need to learn that you may have to do things you don't want to do, or like you, you may feel certain ways, but, and that's okay. You can feel that way, but we need to work through it. Like still giving them that language. It's not a, Oh, I'm, I don't want to do this. I don't have to do it kind of thing. I know some parents like may worry about that, but no, acknowledge their feelings. Just like when a kid has an AAC device and they ask for candy and you say, no, we're going to do book first, then candy. Like you acknowledge it, that's important, but it doesn't mean that you have to give it to them. 
um, I, I have one mom that models very, very well. And she was like, no, we're all done listening to Hey Jude. It's time for something different now. And then the little one continues to press, like he really, really loves the Beatles. And she's like, mom, mom needs a break from the Beatles right now. Let's go to Sesame Street. <laughs> I'm like, you know, it's been a week of Mondays when you're over the Beatles and need Sesame Street. <laughs> But just be flexible, I think, is the most important thing because, like, their appetite may change on an hourly day to day basis. Like, their anxiety may change. Making it fun. Like, I'll play out of games with my kids using an SOS approach because it's like, instead of we're going to kiss it and touch it and lick it and bite it, like, let's do a spinner and see what we need to do. Let's roll a dice. It makes it fun. They forget that, like, they're doing work because you're making it more of like a fun experience for them and giving them some autonomy with it. Um, can I just say not once in this entire episode, did either one of us give a recommendation for a non-evidence-based, non-speech, oral motor exercise, chewy tube, or anything that vibrates? Because guess what? You don't need any of that in order to be a functional evidence-based feeding clinician. And I would highly recommend you follow up with Sherry Fraker on food chaining, Dr. K. Toomey for the SOS approach, anything by um, Dr. Joan Arvidson. And we have an episode coming up um, with um, Dr. Marion Russell, OTRL, from uh, notube.com. She's from the interdisciplinary. She's like the OT on the world premiere feeding tube dependency clinic out of Austria. That's like amazing. And you'll find that none of that is indicated. So I'm just gonna. Mm -hmm. And just, yeah, just also just be, yeah, be cautious and ask questions, ask questions. Yeah. Ask questions. Yes. That, that's <laughs> again, it's been a week of Mondays. All right, everyone. All right, Aaron, I adore you. Thank you, friend. All right. Let me, let me switch this over to questions. Hold on real quick. Okay. Thank you, Erin and Michelle. Please hang on while they prepare to answer your questions. In the meantime, if you have a question, please type it in the tab titled Q&A. And remember, following this course, please log into your account to take the test and then the survey. Okay, can you hear me, Erin and Michelle? Yep, totally got it. Okay, so uh, I'm just gonna double check real quick. I don't see any questions posted in the Q&A. And let me check the chat box. And I don't see any questions posted there. Excellent. Okay. Well, I just wanted to share some exciting news. Uh, Feeding Matters today posted an excellent um, infographic. So please check out their uh, Instagram, their Facebook account, wherever you follow Feeding Matters, where it just demonstrates uh, they they share the evidence that one in 37 children is now being diagnosed with a pediatric feeding disorder, and where we technically will not have the new PFD diagnostic code until ICD-11 rolls out this coming October. Uh, they, they do have that code coming, and it is getting diagnosed through other feeding aversions, oropharyngeal dysphagia, etc. So please, uh, share the evidence, raise awareness, and use the free materials that Feeding Matters has available. Uh, I was just super excited to see that one coming through. Also, uh, <laughs> we just, just had a message come through. Uh, you can catch that infographic on uh, at First Bite Podcast on our Instagram account as well. And I make sure to share all of that information there. Uh, next week's episode is the perfect outgrowth of uh, an episode that we did earlier this summer. Next week, we have Learning to Listen with Janine Intwistle Viole. And she is a brand new Lissle Minted Certified ABT SLP. And she is going to talk to us all about uh, the process and what exactly a LISL certified uh, ABT specialist can do. And in case y'all were not yet aware, uh, speechtherapypd.com is now sponsoring a ASHA and a AAA 
CEU course called On the Ear with Dakota Sharp. And this just, it's a natural progression from the cochlear implant talk that Dakota did on First Bite a couple of months ago. So if you're really interested in working with children that have a hearing impairment, I would recommend before next week going back and following back up and listening to Dakota's episode where he talks about uh, the diagnostic uh, implementation uh, procedures and then all of the coding and programming that it takes in order to uh, functionally use a cochlear implant because that will set you for success for Janine's episode next Tuesday. So uh, let, me, let me just double check that nothing else has come in while I was sharing all my nerdy factoids of the night. Nope, that's it. Okay. Well then, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. And uh, please know that we are in the works for planning something exciting for pediatric feeding disorders for the month of November. So when we have everything together, I'll be sure to share it out. But y'all have a good night. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and be safe. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.